morning. Our text this morning is from Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. You can find uh, this on page 797 and the Bibles that are placed in the chairs in front of you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I'm so thankful that you all have joined us this morning. I am Ransom Kent. Uh, I am uh, the pastor here. A different Ransom from the songs that we sung today. Um, we've, we are just one sermon away after this one from finishing our summer series. I've really enjoyed uh, my study time and preaching time uh, in this series, and I um, uh, continue to do so. We find ourselves in Zechariah 9 this morning, as we just read. And uh, just to kind of, again, quick context, good to know where these guys are in history. Uh, last week, we talked about Haggai. Haggai, his main message for the Israelites was rebuild, rebuild the temple. Uh, Zechariah was his counterpart. And so while Haggai was preaching rebuild, Zechariah was preaching rejoice with a dash of repent in there, here and there. Um, and so we talked last week about how God in revealing himself and showing who he is to the Israelites was stirring up, was stirring up their motivations, was, was helping them to obey. And I think that we can look at Zechariah and a lot of his visions as kind of a, a zooming in on what that stirring up looks like. Zechariah here is giving very, very good news to the Israelites as they're working on the temple. Um, Zechariah is also interesting because uh, there's no question about it. The motivation that was being brought, uh, the hope for these Israelites was this coming and future king. You can see this in the prophecy we read today. There's this, this figure coming, this Messiah coming, who will fulfill all the things they've been waiting for. And that is certainly good news. But what's interesting for us is three of the gospel writers look back at Zechariah and they unquestionably see Jesus. This passage, of course, we see the triumphal entry, right? You have the, 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 the king, the triumphal king, coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, of course. 
Um, And so as we're looking at this passage today, um, there's probably three or four sermons in here. There's a lot of content. You could outline it past, present, future. You could outline it Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You could outline it uh, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification. But really with the context, what we're going to try and focus on this morning is God's motivation for saving His people. God's motivation for saving His people. It's about God accomplishing salvation. And this passage answers, I think, very well, why did He do it? And so let's pray, and then we'll jump in to the text. Father in heaven, You are not only a promise maker, You're a promise keeper. And our hope is found in Your sure and secure Word. And so this morning, Father, may I not stand in the way of that. May Your people hear Your Gospel. May Your people hear what You have to say. May they hear what You have done, what You are doing, and what You're going to do for Your people. And may hope rise in our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage asks and answers three questions. So we'll... we'll You have to think of it this way. From the Israelite perspective, all of this is future. All of this is answering the question, what is God going to do? But from our perspective, New Testament Christians, there's actually three questions. And one of them is, what did God already do? What did God do to save us? The second question is, what is He doing now? And the third question is, why did He do it? So that's kind of the the flow we're going to follow this morning. So let's ask the question, what did God do? We see this in verses 9 through 12. What did God do? Let's just cut to the chase. He sent Jesus. God the Son in the flesh. He sent Jesus. Here Jesus in verses 9-12 through is portrayed as this righteous, perfect, conquering King who brings salvation to His people in a time of peace. Let's take a look. So here Jesus is seen as the King of peace. Look at verse 9 with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is portraying a king of peace. This is particularly exciting for the Israelites because they want a righteous king. They're waiting for a king. They've been waiting for a king that would deliver what they had always hoped. They'd had a bad streak of kings. Since David, who they considered the righteous king, kind of the template for kings, they had had a bunch of bad ones. We've we've heard about them last summer, didn't we? Bad king, bad king, bad king. In some way, all of the kings failed the people. And and in in the Israelite religion and the Israelite government, the king acted as a representative, much like a priest, for the people. So when the king was not righteous, the people were punished. And so we have this king, this king they're looking forward to, who's riding in on a donkey. And then we have verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That's another uh, fancy word for Israel. The war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Why is this king riding on a donkey and not a war horse? Because all of his enemies have been conquered. Why don't the people need weapons? Because all of their enemies have been conquered. And so here we have this king who comes to the people in victory and in peace, and there's no one left to fight. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus won total victory on the cross. Total victory. 
I think a great place to look at this, Colossians 2. This is Paul's description of it. What God did through Jesus Christ. God disarmed the rulers and authorities but, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Although the world saw the cross as a shameful thing, we see it for what it really is. Jesus Christ defeated all of His enemies through His death and His resurrection. You can see as we're reading just these few verses where the apostles, as they're reading the scrolls, they're reading Zechariah, they're like, oh man, this is Jesus. 100% this is Jesus. So the first thing that God did is He sent Jesus, the King of Peace. The King of Peace also is righteous and humble. Those two words are connected here. Righteous. Uh, this is important uh, because as I mentioned before, the king acted as a representative. So David was considered a righteous king because of his repentance. I think sometimes we get this wrong. We look at David and we think, oh, he must have done something that deserved that title of righteous king. No, David did lots of terrible things. Lots of terrible things. He was a sinner just like you and me. The difference is, the thing we should try to emulate is that when he sinned and he was called out on it, he repented. He repented. He said, God, I was wrong. God, I sinned against you and you only, he says. And so in, in some sense, David was, the, was the, 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 uh, uh, the, the marker, the bar that was set for the rest of the kings. None of them lived up to it. No righteous king after David. But here we have Jesus who's next level righteous. Okay, Jesus, Jesus is next level righteous because he does not require repentance. Jesus lived approximately 33 years on this earth. In that time, he'd never think about this, how difficult this would be. He never had a wrong thought. He never said a wrong word. He never accidentally slipped up and, and did the wrong thing. No, he, Jesus humbly, this is where this word humble came, it comes in, obeyed the law of God through and through. He is perfectly righteous. Not because he was able to repent when he did sin. He never sinned in the first place. This new king, Jesus the conquering king, righteous and humble. I think a great description of this and how it affects us, how it affects us as Christians is from 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Do you hear, hear this kind of an awkward wording? But God, what did God do in Jesus Christ? Jesus came, God the Son, and He became sin for us. He became our sin so that we might what? In Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So this righteousness that, 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 that one-ups David's, um, infinite-ups David's righteousness is actually a righteousness that in faith belongs to us because Jesus, as our kingly representative to God, He is seen as perfect, and in turn, we have the same standing as Him before God. It's a miracle. Imputation is so important. That's the word for what happens here with Christ. Sharing His righteousness with us. And so we have this king of peace who's conquered his enemies. He is righteous. He is humble. And then we have this last thing that he brings salvation. Look at this here. He's having salvation, is he? Because all the enemies are conquered, the people's, the king's people are free to live under his right rule. They're free. They're actually really saved. Since there are no enemies left, nothing can touch them. Jesus on the cross acted as a scapegoat for our sins. He took our wrath. We deserve what He got. 
We were asked to do what He did in His life, live perfectly. We didn't. And so we deserve that wrath of God. And instead of us facing that, Jesus Christ faced it in our place. Through that, He saved us. His right words and deeds. His sacrifice of love. They bring real salvation. That's why John 3.16 is so important. It's a great summary of this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, will not be destroyed, but will have eternal life. Jesus did that for us, church. He did it for us all the way. So the, the question of what did God do in the past, He saved us. Fully. Really. Factually. Spiritually. Holy. I love verses 11 and 12 because they give this interesting image of what it means, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. It's a double descriptor. First, verse 11. This is a result of this conquering king coming to his people. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, sound familiar? I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What's a waterless pit? Well, imagine a well without water in it. Smooth sides, you can't get out. There's nothing you can do on your own to get out of this pit. So if you're in the pit and you are a prisoner, you have no hope. There's nothing you can do inside of you to get out. Your hope, your salvation is 100% external to your situation. The bad news, and there's some bad news here, is that this is us. This is everyone, in fact. We cannot escape our sin. Our sin holds us prisoner. Before Jesus Christ comes into our life, our sin holds us prisoner. And there is nothing we can do to escape. It's, we are held such, in such a prison that even the good things we do are considered sin. Without Jesus Christ. But there's good news. The King doesn't save the worthy. Notice what the resume of these people are. It's not, hey, these are just my diplomats or these are my leaders. No, they are simply His people and they're in prison. And so He saves them. He saves them. And so, in this image in verse 11, salvation is enacted by Jesus alone that it might glorify Jesus Christ, the King of peace alone. But the image isn't done. I love verse 12. What are we saved to? Faith in the victory of Jesus gives a new reality. Look at verse 12. Return to the stronghold. So the fort, O prisoners of hope, today I declare that I will restore to you double. Listen. We are still prisoners. In Jesus Christ, we are still prisoners. I thought you said we were free, Ransom, but listen, we were unable to escape, held captive by our sin in the waterless pit, right? But Jesus Christ, the saving and perfect King, what did He do? He saved us. And now, we are held captive. Think about this. We're held captive by something that is real and exciting and rejoicing. We're held captive by hope. And so this salvation that is real and powerful and eternal makes us prisoners of hope. And that's the answer to the question. What did God do? He made us prisoners of hope through Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we have to do to be saved. Jesus Christ did all the work. What, we, what must we do? Become followers of Him. Have faith in Him. So as we zoom through, that's the question, what did He do? We go now to the next section, verses 13-15, through 15, and we ask, what is He doing now? So we see in the past, God saved His people. What is He doing now for them? Look at verses 13 and 14, if you would. 
For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and He will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Notice how God is speaking about Himself in this battle. There's a battle going on in this scene. There's a battle. So all his, He's freed His people. He's conquered His enemies. He's won the war. They're going back to their fort to finish up this battle. And what is happening? God is fighting for His people. Look how God is the one who what? He appears over them. His arrow goes forth. He sounds the trumpet. He marches forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Immediately I was drawn back to the Exodus, Exodus 14. There's this lovely scene that happens. The the Israelites are leaving Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is coming. And what do they say? Moses, you should have just left us with the Egyptians. You should have just left us there. And I love this line from Moses. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. (laughs) Think about that. There, there, there's a, a big ocean here or a big sea here. There's a, the most powerful army in the world here. What are they going to do? Moses says, just wait and watch. That's the message to us as Christians. That's the message to us, church. God does the fighting for us. In Christ, the war is the already won. Remember verse 10, we don't need weapons. We're not fighting a physical war any longer. We're in a battle, and this passage reminds us that God appears over us, like a banner of victory. And so think about this. We are engaged in battles every day. Are we not? Are we not? We are engaged in battles of all kinds every day. What we can take from this passage is that the victory in the end is already guaranteed. We need not be overwhelmed. We need not lose hope. Think of the Israelites. They were were dealing with uh, other countries coming in and trying to disrupt the rebuilding of the temple. And so as they're hearing Zechariah say this, they're being reminded it may seem bleak at times, but God will win the war. And church, I point back to the cross of Christ and I remind us that God has already won it. The gospel cannot fail. The plan of God cannot be thwarted. And for His glory, which still is beyond me sometimes, He uses broken, sinful people to do His will. Verse 15, there's something else that he's doing now. So God is fighting for us. Verse 15, he is also protecting his people. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. Please don't take this literally, all right? Let's describe what's going on here. Listen, what what is happening here is you have this weak Israelite people. They don't feel strong. Remember what happened. They don't have even enough resources to build the temple. And so this message would be encouraging to them because in God, their banner of victory, the one who fights for them, in their weakness, they are strong. Not because of their skills. Not because of their resources. Not because of anything about them. It's all about their God. And the same goes for us. God protects us. He doesn't give us skills and and wisdom and these things so that we can fend for ourselves. He fends for us and He protects us, church. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking very personally about uh, an issue. We still don't know what the issue is really, but he calls it the thorn in his side. And he says this about this thing that, that plagued him his whole life. 
this weakness that he had. He says this in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace, this is God speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God speaking, is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said to Paul. And here's Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We don't feel protected sometimes, church. I know. But what we must do is boast in our weakness. We will never be able to defend ourselves in whatever scenario is coming, but if we trust in God, if we remember who God is and what He promises to do, whether we believe He's doing it or not, He's protecting us. That's where the strength comes from. That's where glory of God comes from. So what did God do? He saved us through Jesus Christ. What is God doing? He's strengthening us. We come to the the question of the day, why did He do it? (laughs) Why did He do it? We all know ourselves. We know what we do. We know who we are. And if we're really honest, we look at what God has done. It didn't depend on us. We look at what He's doing. It doesn't depend on us. And we think, why would He do this in the first place? The answer comes, in verses 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shine on His land. Let's stop there. There's two things here in verse 16. First of all, we are His flock. Why did God do it? We are His flock. We have been purchased by His blood. We belong to Him. We're His possessions. We belong to God, and therefore He did it because we are His, not because we're special. He has chosen us, and we belong to Him. That's the first reason, but there's more texture to it. Keep going. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. So we are not simply possessions that He's redeeming because, well, I guess they belong to me and nobody else is going to take them. No, we are his prized possessions. Look at this. We are precious to him. He is likening his people like the jewels of his crown. Earlier in Zechariah, he calls the people the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye. We all know what that means. Precious and vulnerable. He looks at them with love, deep love. So why did he send Christ? Why does He contend with us wretched sinners even now? Why did He do it? Because He loves us. We're His prized possessions. And church, listen. God's love for us is our only hope. Our only hope. Only in this triumphant love that God has demonstrated in the past, in the present, and what He promises in the future. It's the only hope we have. There is no other. Only in the hope of what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have accomplished for us. It's the only hope we have. The only hope we have is in our justification accomplished by God, our sanctification accomplished by God, and our glorification accomplished, you guessed it, by God. It's our only hope. Our only hope in what God has already done for us, what He's doing now, and what He promises to do in the future. And so, listen, this is not... Fingers crossed. I hope. No, this is a bona fide hope because the things that have been done for us are bona fide real things. Real, historical, factual, actual things. 
that God did for us, He's doing for us, and He will do for us. And they give us hope because what? They communicate God's love for us. So it says here in verse 16, on that day, I say to this to us, church, in the future, on that day when Christ returns, on that day, we will see with our own two eyes, probably resurrected eyes, we'll see with our own two eyes the actual defeat of all of God's enemies. It's real now, but in our brokenness, sometimes we don't, don't see it, we don't understand it. But when Jesus Christ comes again and He brings healing in His wings, we will see for ourselves the hope we've been living for. So here's some examples. Let's get specific. Every enemy we face day to day Its day is coming. On that day, the Lord will save us. So think about this. Cancer, its day is coming. Illness, its day is coming. Rebellion, pride in our hearts, its day is coming. Abuse, injustice, guess what? Its day is coming. All the things we face, all the hurt that we feel, all the sadness and loneliness and all the terrible things of the world, its day is marked in God's book and it is is coming. Its day is coming. And so church, even when things seem to go sideways, even when the world seems upside down, even when it seems like the enemy is winning the day, listen, we are prisoners to hope. We are prisoners to hope, real hope. And that we are made prisoners to hope because God has declared over us, and we can't undeclare it, that we are His prized possessions. His people. His people. And this morning, I, I want to talk to those, just briefly, for those who do not know Christ, maybe you don't consider yourself someone who follows Christ. Listen, I have bad news for you, and I'm not trying to rub your nose in it. Maybe you're listening online or you're here this morning. I don't, this is not like, hey, <laughs> in your face. No, this is truth. And I've got bad news and I've got some good news. The bad news is, listen, there is no hope like this hope in this world. And maybe some of you in the church need to hear this too. We're grasping, we all grasp onto these things that we think that we can hope in and they're false and they're temporary and they don't deliver. That's bad news. But here's the good news. We have a good God. Look at verse 17. For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. There's this good and beautiful God who has made real hope accessible to every person. Real people. We can have real hope. And it comes through Jesus Christ. Following Jesus Christ. Believing that what He did is actually effective for our salvation. Believing that God has this, these people and His people are His prized possession. One author this week I was reading said, from eternity, God has overflowed with love. And I would add to that that to and through eternity, He does the same. In creation, in creation, what does He do? He declares His love for us. He made it for Adam and Eve. He made it pleasant and perfect. And He dwelt with them. Then, even in the fall, what did He do? (laughs) Even when we messed it all up, He declares His love for sinners. And then how does He do that? Through redemption in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, putting Himself on the cross and rising from the grave again. What is God doing? He's declaring His love for His people. And in that day, 
when He comes to save His people and our eyes are opened and we see God's victory for all eternity, what is that going to be? It's going to be a witness. A witnessing of us, the full measure of God's love for us. That's what it is. Now if you notice each week, the Lord's Supper just so happens to connect very well with the sermon. That's not because I'm clever. It's because the Lord's Supper is the Gospel Church. Here we have, in the broken bread and the, and the wine or the juice, we have a visible reminder. We have a visible representation of the past, present, and future. We can be reminded of what Christ did, done, what is done already for us in Him dying on the cross. We're reminded that God promised through Jesus Christ to be with us and to nourish us and to protect us and fight for us. And this meal is a reminder, a call into that reality. And also, church, this is a rehearsal dinner. <laughs> That's what it is. We are rehearsing the feast we will have at the end of time when our eyes are opened and we see the outpouring of God's victory and His love for us. And so this morning... Let us make it about all those things. That's a lot of things. Pick and choose your favorite because all of them are good news. All of them are good news. And so this morning, if, if you believe that you're a sinner, you believe that you are in a waterless pit, you could not get out, and you believe that Jesus Christ was the only hope that you had to escape, and you believe that the thing that He did for you has made you a prisoner of hope, you follow Him, you're committed to Him, Imperfectly as it is, God is working your salvation out in you even now. He fights for you. He protects you. If you believe these things and you have been baptized and you have made this public profession of faith, come and rehearse this morning. Come and eat. For those of you that don't believe those things or maybe you're saying in your heart, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'd rather have the hope of this world than the hope of Christ. The Scriptures make it very clear this is not the time or the place for you to come and eat. Wait on it. Wait. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a few moments to evaluate, pray silently. I'm going to lead us uh, in a prayer of blessing. After that prayer of blessing, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. If you need the words, they're in your bulletin here. Um, we're going to do that, and then I'll invite the elders forward once we're done with that to distribute the bread and the wine and juice. So let's just take a few moments of quiet prayer. Father in heaven, I am a I'm a feeble man speaking feeble people, and we are so, more than we know, more than we can imagine, more than we admit, dependent upon You. So this morning, I, I praise You, and I thank You that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that He lived that perfect life that, that we were supposed to, but we never could. Not even Adam and Eve could do it. He lived that perfect life in humble obedience to You. Although He was equal with You, 
obeyed you. He followed your plan. I'm thankful that He stepped in my place and accepted the wrath of God for me and for us so that we might be called the children of God, that we might receive that righteousness. And I want to thank you too this morning that your Holy Spirit is here. We don't have to invite it in. We don't have to say a, a hocus-pocus kind of spell to get it to come. No, Lord, your Spirit is here among your people and it is power. And I thank you, Lord, that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us and to me through the power of that Spirit. And I pray this morning that you would, through that same Spirit, the one that hovered over the waters, the one that descended during Christ's baptism, the one that descended upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost, that same Spirit that's here and in us would bless this supper. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord. May it be nourishment for our souls. May we remember that you fight for us, you protect us. Whatever's going on in our lives, remind us. And Lord, in submission to your will, we pray together the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.